As climate change leads to more extreme weather events, we have to confront the question, how will we rebuild? As these weather events become more frequent, we really need to be considering who will be the people rebuilding, not only preparing for these extreme weather events, but dealing with the aftermath. And today here to talk about this with us on the conversation is Sankit Soni, who's a labor organizer working at the intersection of climate change, migration, and racial justice. Socket is the founder of Resilience Force and just came out with a new book, The Great Escape, a true story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America. The book is out on Tuesday, or it just came out January 24th. And it's currently number one on Amazon's immigration and labor policy. I'm Jessica Burbank, thrilled to be joined with Socket. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jessica, great to be here. So let's start in October of 2006, the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Can you tell us a little bit about what went down and what your introduction to migration labor was? Absolutely, you know, Katrina was in many ways the first major, <clears throat> the first major climate disaster. Um, at least the first major one that most of us can remember, the first one that got so much uh, national attention. And I was a labor organizer <clears throat> in New Orleans. Um, what I saw was that Katrina had turned the US Gulf Coast into the world's largest construction site. And the people doing the rebuilding were black and brown workers. Um, they were standing every morning at 5 a.m. under a 60 foot tall monument to Robert E. Lee. Um, contractors would pull up in buses. Workers would clamber on, I'd get on with them and I'd go and watch them um, rebuild the dark distant corners of the Gulf Coast. Um, I was running a small labor rights nonprofit uh, whose mission was to protect these workers as we could. And that's what I was doing when I got the mysterious midnight phone call um, that put me on the trail of what ended up becoming one of the largest human trafficking schemes in modern US history. Let's go through a little bit of that history. Were the workers aware of what they were getting into? How did their expectations match up to the reality of the work they found in the United States? Sure, yeah, the, the, the phone call I got was from a man who insisted on remaining anonymous. But I could tell from uh, the way he said my name, uh, that he was from India. I'm from India. I, you know, I came from Delhi to the United States. He said it the way my name is pronounced in my hometown, and uh, and I wondered, you know, what was a man from India doing in the ruins of the Mississippi Gulf Coast after Katrina? It turned out he was one of 500 men um, who was brought um, to work for a giant oil rig company, an oil rig builder in Mississippi. Um, the workers, all 500 of them were promised green cards, uh, which means they were promised the chance to uh, get permanent residency and eventually citizenship in the United States. And they were promised good jobs. Um, when they arrived though, they found that there were never any green cards. The promises were, were false. Um, they had paid $20,000 for this opportunity. Um, that's generations worth of saving. They, they sold ancestral lands. Um, they were sold an American dream, but they found themselves dropped in the middle of an American nightmare. So let's go through a little bit of 
about what happened for all of those people that came to the United States once they got here. Their living conditions were abysmal. Can you oh, walk yeah. us through some of them? Yeah, Jessica, the, the living conditions were atrocious. Um, the workers were living in a labor camp that even the company called a man camp facility. That was the company's name for where they were living was a man camp. Um, they were cramped 24 to a trailer. These trailers were placed on top of a toxic waste dump. Um, workers were living confined in barbed wire fences. They were working round the clock shifts, 12 hours um, daytime, 12 hours at night, um, building these oil rigs. Um, and they weren't given uh, you know, as much as proper food to eat while they were doing it. Many workers described how uh, all three meals of the day consisted of frozen rice that, that they would warm up, not with a microwave, but by sucking on it. But the profound, the most profound indignities, Jessica, were the ones I learned once I got to know the workers better. So for example, there was a, a young man in his late 20s uh, named Ebi Raju. Ebi had gotten married to his wife right before he left, expecting she would be with him nine months later. That's what the recruiters promised. Well, one day he was uh, 20 feet high on a platform and um, doing a dangerous drilling job when his phone rang, it was his wife, she was pregnant. And she was now uh, you know, going into emergency surgery. Then the phone died and Ebi didn't know what happened. His son was born that day, but Ebi Raju wouldn't see his son, the son that was born that day for the next three years. Those were the kinds of things that workers told me um, made them want to join uh, our freedom struggle, even though the stakes were so high and it was full of danger. And you are integral for a lot of these workers in taking their experiences and turning them into labor leaders, which was never their intention coming to the United States. But you profile a few of these cases in the book. Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the men who um, who was this incredible just labor leader without having ever been trained for it was uh, was an am, a man named Rajan. Um, he he was uh, he was really the kind of partner a labor organizer dreams of. He reached out to me and wanted to meet secretly. All my meetings with these men were secret. Um, they were all clandestine, um, sometimes in churches, sometimes in hotel rooms. Um, Rajan wanted to meet with me and over the series of secret meetings, um, he taught me a lot. He taught me um, about the pressures the men were experiencing, about um, what kind of company it was. He also taught me, by the way, how to cook. And over many, many incredible meals, we engineered um, an escape out of a heist film. The the name, The Great Escape, refers to this elaborate, um, uh, you know, Ocean's Eleven type, you know, bank heist style uh, escape that that we carried out together. Um, I don't want to give away too much, but involved. Lots of mini bar bottles of wild turkey whiskey, um, flavored cigars from Mississippi gas stations, and a very elaborate but completely fictitious Indian wedding that provided the pretext uh, to steal the workers out of the labor camp under the noses of the guards um, and, and then put them on a road uh, to a long freedom march to Washington DC. It's truly such an amazing story and one that 
I think America might be ready for. Oftentimes reading the headlines, you see the narrative that these kinds of things don't happen in the United States. How ready do you think the public is in the United States for understanding that really this was a labor camp and this was human trafficking? Yeah, I think it's really important to um, to understand these stories. Um, one of the most important things about this story in particular was, you know, as we were walking to Washington um, to demand justice from the federal government, what we didn't know was that deep inside the federal government there was a corrupt agent with his own ties to this very company and his own personal motivations for deporting and jailing the workers, even before we got to DC. Uh, on our way, we were surveilled, we were hunted. Um, workers, um, you know, eventually um, found this incredible smoking gun that I don't want to give away, but it had to do with this, uh, you know, incredibly secretive government agent um, who was really working very hard on his own machinations to unravel our plans. So these are the kinds of stories I think um, I think readers are ready for, hungry for even, and I think they really need to be told because. Um, you know, we don't want these stories to be repeated. I mean, there have been so many climate disasters since Hurricane Katrina. After each one, immigrant workers are doing massive amounts of rebuilding, but they do it undocumented, unprotected, and under incredibly hazardous conditions. And you know, we need we need a better deal for those workers. Right, we've had over 200, you know, one billion plus dollar disaster since Hurricane Katrina, which is a lot. And migrant workers have really become the backbone of this disaster rebuilding industry. And you're doing some work in California with a lot of these resilience workers with your nonprofit resilience force. Can you speak about the fires in California and some of the flooding mitigation plans the workers have been focused on? Yes, well, we have crews all over the country. You know, when hurricanes, fires, and floods occur, the workers follow disasters and we follow the workers. My team and I wake up in Home Depot parking lots. We, um, you know, protect them as they get on roofs. In California, uh, there have been successive years of fires in California uh, because of drought. And so our crews in California are making California ready for these fires, making California fire resistant and fire resilient. But those same crews are also doing that work. All of that work is also now preparing California for this massive flooding. It's really the same cycle of work. Now these can be good jobs and they can be jobs for millions of people in America, not just immigrants, but many, many more. And that's our that's our hope, that's our effort. It's really amazing stuff. Can you just let us in on how did these workers get your phone number in the first place to call you to start all of this? What a great question. You know, I used to spend um, uh, my mornings starting at 4:35 in the morning distributing flyers. Those flyers would go all over the Gulf Coast, and dozens and dozens of workers a day would call me um, from these bright pink flyers. You couldn't miss them. Uh, the thing that was interesting about this group of workers was, you know, they were from India. And that's what made them so mysterious and why I went on a hunt to find them. It's really amazing. So where would you like folks to find more of your work? And I want to remind everyone that The Great Escape is out now. Definitely check out this book. Well, this is really just an invitation. You know, if you're if you're reading The Great Escape, reach out. I am I'm so curious to hear what you think. And to support Resilience Force, just go to resilienceforce.org. And if you are in a disaster prone state, 
uh, if you're hit by disaster, uh, reach out to us and tell us how we can help. Thank you so much for coming on Socket. Uh, this work is so important. I mean, seriously, the grassroots like grassroots labor organizing that can change you know, the country and by extension the world. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jessica. We're in a transition time in the White House. Things are changing up for Joe Biden. His chief of staff has changed this coming week. So here to talk about this with us, we have Crystal Knight, who's a Democratic strategist, former political director of Priorities USA, a founding executive director of Emerge Tennessee, with a ton of experience in political campaigns, especially affiliated with the Democratic Party. And a lot of people are taking this shakeup in a few different ways from Ron Klain to Jeff Zients. And it's it's people on both ends of the political spectrum, right? Conservatives and progressives are not fans of this newcomer. So Crystal, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this with us. Absolutely, thanks for having me. So how should the public understand how much the chief of staff influences the work in the White House? Well, the chief of staff influences every single thing from what the public understands about policy, how the president's decisions are made. He or she will be the president's chief counsel as it relates to who's hired, who represents the president on behalf of the American public. Also the key decisions when we think about wars, when we think about the pandemic, when we think about negotiating with members on the Hill, the chief of staff is literally running the country. He is the, or he or she rather, would be the de facto president in place, obviously, of you know the vice president as well. But it just goes to show that they really have a critical eye and ear to the president. And they are crafting much of what we see after it's already been decided. It seems as though progressives are in this time of grief, right? They are really happy with Ron Klain and now you know, criticizing Zions for his background and the wealth he's accumulated through working in the healthcare industry. The New York Times, we had Kenneth Vogel writing about, you know, he built his wealth partly through healthcare companies that were forced to pay tens of millions of dollars to settle allegations of Medicare and Medicaid fraud. What do you make of these criticisms about the wealth he's amassed and his background working in corporate America? Well, we it's hard to criticize someone for going out, making a living for themselves, and then wanting to come into public service. Oftentimes, it's the reverse. People leave public service, go into the private sector, and they literally don't look back. Now, does it look bad? Maybe that's subjective, but also I think many people are just upset with some of the ways that you know he led the president's task force around the coronavirus, or around health equity, or just healthcare in general, leading you know getting us out of the pandemic, and so. There are many things that people will be upset about. I don't think much of you know Congress or the American public has had the the opportunity to really counsel any president about whom he or she should choose to be their chief of staff. But ultimately, hopefully, this was a decision made by Ron Klein as he was heading out, and by President Biden himself about who could lead this administration in the fight particularly with a new GOP-led Congress. 
And the main criticism of the GOP is of his work as the senior coronavirus coordinator. Namely, when we had the transition of a new variant coming out, he warned folks that there would be you know, illness and deaths coming ahead if we didn't handle the situation properly. This led to various members of the GOP tweeting out former videos of him explaining you know, the daunting new variants that were coming out. We didn't know how contagious or how deathly they were at the time. What do you make of, of this as a criticism for a chief of staff? Listen, I think that's fair. You know, how you present and you know, speak the language that you use, that's important because again, you're not only representing the president, but you're representing all of the United States. You are one of the most forward-facing figures in an administration. And could he have used better tact? Absolutely. Could he have shared that information so that it was delivered in a more soft manner to the American public to let us know about the gravity of the new variant that was coming out? Absolutely. So I think that that criticism is warranted. I hope that the president and the outgoing chief of staff has spoken to him about that, about his tact, about the way that he speaks and how it can either elicit you know, certain types of response from both sides of the aisle. But ultimately, how Americans feel about the pandemic moving forward is important and how its message is even more important. Some folks are framing, you know, Ron Klein's expected departure, right? This was something that was not a surprise to the Biden administration. They knew it was coming, but they're calling it a loss for the Biden presidency. Would that be the case for any transition to a new chief of staff? Or is there something unique about this transition? I don't think that there's anything unique about Ron Klein exiting. He could literally be leaving because he's likely to go and hit up President Biden's reelection. So that was my first thought. It wasn't a, oh my God, he's leaving. It's a, he's preparing. He understands that if the president is going to launch a formidable reelection campaign, he needs a strong leader. And even if he just, you know, even if Ron Klein is his senior advisor to the campaign or whatever his role is, The president understands, he understands that there has to be a transition to prepare this president for every single attack that is coming about the first two years of his presidency. And who better to do that than the man that authored and steered the boat? Now, you're pretty familiar with the electoral stuff, given that you're the political director of the largest Democratic presidential super PAC. Is that what you make of this as well as that? Director, right, right. (laughs) Right. is that what you make of this, that, that the run is gonna be announced soon? You know, I do anticipate that President Biden will run for reelection. Um, stranger things have happened, but I don't anticipate that he will not run. So my take again on Ron Klein leaving is that he's going to help set up the president's reelection campaign. Now, I could be absolutely wrong and he could want a break because this is grueling work, um, working in an administration As the chief of staff, you don't get a day off. That is a seven day, 24 hour job. But ultimately, I think there's a bigger hand at play. Right, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's coming also at a time where we've got Biden in the news every day about the classified documents situation. Does that make this transition more difficult? You know, initially I thought the classified document scandal would really blow up in the president's face, but considering that classified documents have been found at Vice President Pence's um, you know, personal home, 
I think that this story is actually dying down. Other news is happening. And what we know is, you know, big stories last for about a week and it, it, until the next big thing happens. And so I think that the president can weather this storm. That's the one thing that makes working in American politics easy is the short memory of the public and the news cycle running out. Now, something that could bring more controversy to this is that the special counsel that's investigating these cases doesn't get to coordinate. So if they handle the cases differently, the classified documents you know, found at Mar-a-Lago versus Biden versus Pence, do you foresee that becoming an issue for the, the president? Potentially, listen, no president wants to hear a special counsel, not a city. <laughs> And you know, we don't want that for President Biden. Those of us who are hardcore Democrats, we don't want the president to be investigated for anything. We want to believe that, you know, all of our elected officials are acting in accordance with what they've been tasked to do. If the special counsel does not coordinate, it likely won't present a problem. I think it's actually an impartial way to ensure that there's transparency in the process as they continue to investigate what these documents are and what type of harm would they cause being in the president's personal possession. That makes a lot of sense. Now I wanna ask you a question related to, to some of your other work in the South, in Tennessee, especially training women candidates to run for public office. Oftentimes I see people writing off the South as you know a democratic stronghold. To me, I see a, a strong working class perspective here and progressive values. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, do you agree with that? Is that the right take? Well, I think the South has something to say, which is a very tried and true statement if you are a true Southerner like myself. Um, but I think, you know, if we go back to the Howard Dean days, there were there was a 50 state strategy around electing Democrats in this country and around trying to convince the American public about who the Democrat you know, the Democratic candidate would be. I think we have to get back to that. I think what we've seen in this election cycle for the midterm elections is that Georgia, North Carolina, those are two key states in the Southern region who have not just given up on, you know, Republicans and they have not turned over all of their electoral power to Republicans, they are continuing to fight. And so what we'll see in states like my home state of Tennessee, in Alabama, in Arkansas, in Kentucky, is slowly but surely, as we continue to see more investment into those states, we will see changes in leadership. Even in Shelby County in August, there was a DA primary and a new progressive DA was elected because there was investment into the county. And so again, it takes concerted investment, dedicated efforts of groups that are on the ground and national money to see that these states will begin to make a turn. Now, I used to work in you know grassroots political organizing and something that I noticed was a lot of times the money and the investment comes during the election cycle and then right. everybody's out right after the election. What do you think has to change other than what you've mentioned? And I understand people do have to pay you for your services. You are a democratic strategist, but whatever you're comfortable sharing about what needs to change about how we run in 2024. Yeah, Jessica, that's such a great question. I think investment has to be sustainable. A lot of times, as you stated, donors parachute in, they want results right now. But if you really care about the long term strategy in this country, you have to care about the investment 
when it's not sexy. So 2023 isn't the sexiest year, but we're preparing for 2024. And so if the donor class, if foundations, people who give towards democratic politics care, they will begin to invest now, look into the future and see what what down ballot seats are able to be taken in 2023 that would set up the federal fight for 2024. Really appreciate your perspective on all of this. Where can our viewers find more of your work? Sure, you can find me on all social media at Chris L. Knight, which is at TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, all the things. And I also have a website, ChrisLKnight.com. Love the TikTok. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today. Thank you so much.